You're listening to 101.9 FM KPCRLP Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here and welcome to episode 165 of Drinks with Tony with my guest David S. Wills. His latest book is called High White Notes, The Rise and Fall of Gonzo Journalism. And on November 11th, the day you're probably listening to this broadcast, it's the 50th anniversary of Hunter S. Thompson's two-part series that came out in Rolling Stone magazine 50 years ago that eventually became the book Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. David and I discuss um, how we discovered the Beats, Kerouac, Hunter S. Thompson, William Burroughs, and essentially almost every dude's journey to getting into this thing called being a writer. Hi, I'm David S. Wills, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have David S. Wills. He's the author of High White Notes, The Rise and Fall of Gonzo Journalism. David, how are you? Very well, Tony. Good to speak with you. You are in Cambodia. How did that happen? I came to Cambodia about 12 years ago on holiday and just fell in love with the place. And last year I was living in Thailand and it became pretty obvious they're going to declare a pandemic in about a day or a week or something. The writing was on the wall. And I thought, where is the best place in the world to see a a pandemic? And I just thought, Cambodia. I mean, it's a, a very rural country. You could stay far apart from other people really easily. There's no crowded spaces or anything. And also I needed to write this book and I'd been researching it for a few years and I thought, I just can't imagine a better place to do it than Cambodia. And specifically this little town I'm in near the Vietnamese border called Kampot, which was just the most chilled out place I'd ever been. And I I arrived here and I arrived on an empty plane in an empty airport, which was a really weird thing. I'd never experienced that before. And I think it was the next day, suddenly all the borders were closed and everything shut down. And I've been here ever since. And it it was the right choice because I managed to write this book. And we went 11 months without the pandemic, without the virus even kicking off in this country. It it got bad eventually, but they've dealt very well with it. That's fantastic. So congratulations on making good choices. (laughs) And and the the writing retreat for me. Yeah. And so um, what, what is it, what was it about diving into Hunter S. Thompson where you're just like, I gotta, I gotta do this. Yeah. So he was always my favorite writer. And after he died, I wanted to write a book about him, but I was young. I was inexperienced. I didn't have the, the skills or the money or the resources or anything to write this book. And as the years went by, I was writing about the beat generation and whatnot, but it was always at the back of my head. I need to do this book about Hunter. And it was a few years ago and it just came to me. Well, we've, we've got all these biographies and they're all good in their own way. And there are one or two books about his writing that tackle quite specific elements of it, but no one's actually done a comprehensive study of his work and no one's really I think taken him seriously as he deserves to be taken and so I decided to do that 
And I, I went back and I read everything I could get my hands on. And I realized there's a very definite arc to his writing career. There's a very steep trajectory where he gained all his skills. And then there is this slow, torturous descent as he lost them and lost the ability to write. And that became basically the shape of the book. And then, so what was it about his losing his ability to write? Was it a cognitive thing? Was it a, uh, was he just losing it in general? Yes. I mean, he'd always struggled with a, a few things, namely that he had this obsession with putting everything into every story. And in the beginning, because he was investing so much time and effort and energy and intelligence into these stories, he would take weeks and months to shape them until they were perfect. In 1973 or 1974, he tried cocaine for the first time. And... <laughs> I, just, I just sounded like a PSA. You tried cocaine yeah, for that the was, first time. That was the end of it. That was the end of it. And, I don't know. It's it's complicated, and I get into it in the book. But cocaine yeah, yeah. probably precipitated the very sudden decline. He might have just also completely burned himself out because I mean, during a, a pe the period of the late '60s and early '70s, he wrote some of the most incredible, uh, innovative work in journalism and literature, and he was just doing it relentlessly. I think he exhausted himself, and he was doing a lot of drugs then too, and. He had this concept of the drugs allow him to uh, I think tap into latent energy reserves that, you know, you're just using yourself up and you don't get this back later. And then, of course, cocaine happened and he, he just couldn't. If you look at his later career, he was still writing great sentences and he still had some wisdom, but he couldn't put those sentences together and certainly not for more than a few hundred or a thousand words. And so his writing became incredibly incoherent and he just became very unreliable with projects and just wouldn't finish things. Again, that's studied uh, in detail in the book. And I look at numerous examples there. What, what was the first time that uh, he, he was on your radar? Wait, what was the first, what was the first time you read him and went, Oh, I would, this is a thing. Yeah, um, I would have been in probably my final year of university. I think I was sitting in this park near my house and a friend handed me a copy of this book. And I think this is kind of like a lot of people get into Hunter or Jack Kerouac in similar ways. It's a friend when you're like somewhere around 18 to 20 years old, just give you this book like this is going to change your life. And it kind of did, you know, and I remember reading it. I think in one sitting in that day, just in the park and the sunny day, I have that memory. I'm just laughing, laughing myself to tears. It was just so ridiculous. And I had no idea who he was or what he was trying to do. And, you know, in, in this book, I'm trying to explore why there's so much to it than just the comedy. But the comedy is so brilliant that generations of people have had this experience, I think. It now, is hilarious. Was it Fear and Loathing? Was that the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I didn't say that, did I? But yeah, it's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is, you know, his most, most famous work. And uh, yeah, definitely the, the funniest and most brilliant of everything he wrote. I, I interviewed Ralph, Ralph Stedman um, probably about oh, wow. 12 years ago. Um, 
he fascinating was a guy as well. He was a kick. Yeah. Cause he did mm-hmm. all the draw. He did all the illustrations for uh, fear. Yeah. And, so. and other, other Thompson works. Yeah. And they had a, an interesting relationship. But Ralph is a, an incredible artist in his own rights. It's, it's a shame that people always look and say, oh, he's the guy that helped Hunter Thompson. He's a, a phenomenal artist. Yeah, yeah and it was, um, <clears throat> I, I interviewed him for Drinks with Tony and we were at a, uh, we were actually at a bar and mm-hmm. um, his publicist was behind him going like this. She was tapping her watch <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just like, yeah, right. I'm going to end the interview that's your job and I'm, and we're enjoying our conversation. So I don't care. This was all in my head. And yeah. then he's like, I think I need another glass of Chardonnay. And I'm like, this conversation Chardonnay. keep going. Yeah. Really? He was on white wine. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't seem like the sort of guy that's going to adhere to a publicist schedule. Very. Oh, uh, no, very- it was so fantastic. And then I just, and then publicists who are kind of pushy like that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's no, no, I'm here with Ralph Stedman. I'm, you can you can blow your for everything it's worth yeah (laughs) i don't i don't care what you what happens to you in your life right now um this is ralph (laughs) yeah must have had some stories to tell yeah he's an interesting fella and he wrote that book um oh and i lost it too and he like did a drawing in it and everything oh my god i'm gonna weep right now um uh it was um but it was a biography about um uh, him he, he wrote his own memoir and okay. um and and about how uh he was supposed to kind it, it was there was kind of a bit of like he was supposed to be um oscar zeta oscar zeta acosta yeah. he was kind of supposed to be the one going to vegas with him but it ended up being um oscar so which was probably very beneficial because yeah. ralph managed to nail the artwork without having been there and Oscar kind of made the, this, this whole story happen. I mean, and yeah. kind of pushed, pushed it along. And when Hunter just kind of wanted to find ether and take all kinds of drugs, Oscar was the one said, no, let's make it about the American dream. Let's, let's do this weird interview with these two women in a, a diner in North Vegas. Yeah. He doesn't get enough credit for that. I didn't even know it was a real person until um, some year, I guess some years after I read uh, the fear and loathing. And then I, and then I, I read, um, what was it? Diary of a Brown bowl Buffalo. or something. Buffalo. Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy's deep, man. He's deep. Yeah. That got republished a few years ago by uh, a press from London and they put it out of this really beautiful edition. And it's a, actually a hell of a book he was a very good writer when he in his own right and it's a shame that he didn't um didn't live long enough to really make a a huge impact as a writer he only got two books out yeah yeah i just uh, i remember that one i just like it just it it was just such a great read and it also kind of felt important and i didn't know i didn't know it's um they got a good edition out i'm gonna have to buy that one yeah it was a a limited edition, so you might have to pick up a secondhand copy oh, of it. Uh, I just my wallet, my wallet just vibrated in my. Uh... Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I was lucky; they sent me a review copy just as it came out. Um, but it's it's gorgeous. They might have done two versions of it as well, but it had uh, it had some writing in it by his biographer, someone Stevens, and also his his son Marco. 
Um, so they both wrote something just to pad out because it's quite a sharp book as well. Oh, is and his son? How old is his son? I don't I, know. This Pro isn't a quiz show. I'm sorry. <laughs> probably. Wait. Okay. Let's see. He was born in the early. He was born in '63, I think. His oh son. wow. So, okay. I'm yeah. not good at math, so that's <laughs> that's the best I can do. No, that's fantastic. I was, um, yeah. Anyway. Um, and then, and then uh, you said you, you uh, was it the beach? What was the what was the first? What was the first like time where you were like, you know what, I I need to be a writer. When when, when in your okay. life did you did it like dawn on you and you go, wait a second, I think this is my thing. So this predates my memory. So um, I mean, my some of my earliest memories are of writing. Oh, really? Stories. So whenever and however I decided that goes back to beyond my conscious memory, but let's just say early childhood. And as a child, it was just writing stories, I guess, fictional stories. And then I went to university to study literature and that added a completely new dimension to it. And it was in the, the final months of the final year, I got introduced to the Beat Generation and founded Beatdom Literary Journal. And so that just kind of became my life ever since. And who, uh, and who was your introduction to the Beats? Uh, well, Jack Kerouac was the first, like I guess most people, and like with Hunter Thompson, it was the most famous book. It was on the road. Again, yeah. someone, probably the same friend, I think handed me that book and said, here, take this, it'll change everything. And then of course, you go from there to reading Ginsburg's Howl and then you're on to Naked Lunch and you're thinking, what the hell is this? I don't understand, <laughs> but I just love it so much. Yeah. And for the last 15 years, I've been kind of studying and writing about these people. I, re I So I didn't really get, um, I grew up in a weird religion and I couldn't really read yeah. too much yeah. like worldly stuff. So when um, I, I started, I, I, when I, the first book I read where I actually like read it for fun and not for fun, but just kind of fell into my lap was uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And I was going okay. through a lot of turmoil and I was just kind of separating myself from the religion. When I read that, I was like, this guy's like speaking to me. This guy's like having a conversation with me. That's honesty that I've never felt in my life. And so after that, somehow I ended up on Henry Miller and I, and, and I remember hearing about, and I found somewhere, someone said something about beat generation and on the road. And I called the local library and it was a Saturday. And I was like, do you have a copy of on the road? You know? <laughs> and they're like, Oh crap. We got another one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then they're like, no, but it's at our other branch. And, all, and I didn't have a car. Or, all I had was my skateboard. I skateboarded a few, I was like called, I said, hold it, I will be there. And they're like, get here before six. I skateboarded straight there. And um, that's, yeah. And I read on the road. And after that, I got a, um, I, was, I was really broke. And, uh, but I knew I had to travel and I got a plane ticket to Paris. And that, would, it, that huh. never would have happened if I didn't read on the road. It's, yeah, yeah. I, I read on the road probably around the May of 2007, I think. And then in August or September, I flew to San Francisco and sort of hitchhiked around the American West. Uh -huh. um, I met with, I went to City Lights bookstore and met with Michael McClure and all that. So yeah, it, 
it's weird. It's uh, like a gateway drug, you know, it it's changes so, your life. It is. And it, and I love how, it, um, how you, it's like Kerouac Ginsburg. Uh, we go to William Burroughs after that. And it's, <laughs> I don't know why we all come in sync together where it's just yeah. like, it's like nobody reads Burroughs first. It's Kerouac yeah, exactly. first. <laughs> well, yeah. It's more, how does that happen cosmically? Well, I think it's largely because on the road, the, you know, not the scroll version, but the published original version is very accessible. It's, it's easy to understand. And so it kind of guides you into this world of really experimental literature that's much harder to grasp. But once you're in, you're in. But these, yeah, these people are all related. It's interesting that you mentioned Henry, uh, Henry Miller there because, yeah, on that same trip, I went down the coast to uh, uh, Big Sur Mm -hmm. and saw the henry miller library and everything it, and then for me it was henry miller came after the beat generation but they're all tied in with henry miller the beats hunter thompson and whatnot all these kind of rebellious very explicit writers they seem to appeal to the same people if you like one you're probably going to get interested in all of them and onwards to brotigan and bukowski and whatnot yeah and you know it kind of blows my mind how important, you know, for me, the, the novel is the most important thing ever. A novel is on a pedestal. If, yeah, sure. if there's a good novelist and I'm emotionally connected, there's nothing like it. It's one of the reasons why I do this show. I want to talk to other authors, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and it's, it's, it's just mind blowing how, um, how important like those books are in that kind of succession of books. Uh, maybe for our times, because when I, I'm, I'm a lot older than you. So when I found, when I read On the Road, I was probably, uh, it was 1992, you know, and okay. I was going and there was no internet yet. So for me to find Henry Miller, I was just walking down the stacks and I saw a book called Crazy Cock. And I'm like, that's funny. I got to pull that out. <laughs> and that was the first Henry Miller book I read. And then I was like, okay, this guy's got other stuff. So, um, um, but the Tropic but the, of Cancer for me was the first one. Yeah. Oh my God. That's the, the first page of that book is just one of the best first pages of a book I've ever read. And like, like Burroughs, like Thompson, it was hilarious and obscene and just so wonderful when you're young and looking for those things that are just so different to everything else. I was in South Korea when I read the, read that book and I was telling a friend about it. I said, I found the most incredible book. It's just, it's beyond description. Here, I'll open it at a random page and I'll read it to you. And we're sitting on this crowded subway, but it's South Korea. So I figured no one will speak English. So it doesn't matter how explicit it is. Yeah. And I read just the worst, most vile and unbelievably <laughs> obscene passage. And we're sitting there just laughing our asses off of this. And I look around and there's this tiny little old white lady sitting beside me. This is like with her eyes wide open in absolute horror at what she's just heard. I bet she enjoyed it though. Uh, I, I heard she jumped off a, a bridge that day. <laughs> is this where humanity's going? I don't belong. <laughs> It'd be fun to, you know, those interactions we have in life where we, you know, like a, like a lady like that, we remember, you remember the visceral reaction when she, when yeah. you realize she spoke English 
And then it's oh, just, yeah. it'd be so much fun to follow their path. Where did they go after that? You know, or, I don't think I could take that. She looked truly horrified. <laughs> I'd ruined her. She'd gone 70 years without hearing anything that explicit. Or you saved her marriage. Maybe she was, oh, yeah. you know, maybe she's, she wasn't open to certain things. And it, and it was coming to an end. It was 40 years together. And then, she, then he was just like, this isn't working out. And she's like, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, that could have been the pivotal moment in her life. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, that, that's, you know, this is, this is where my brain goes. <laughs> but where, where, where did you go to uh, university? About a mile away from where I was born, actually, uh, Dundee University in Scotland. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That must have been cool for your parents or cool for you because you're like, hey, I ain't paying rent. Thanks, mom and dad. No. So, so I was born there and then grew up, you know, only 10, 15 minutes away. Um, but yeah, I, I moved out and lived with my friends at university. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I guess it dawned on me years later, the place where I studied was actually a mile away or so from the hospital where I was born. Uh, do you miss it? Scotland? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's very different from Cambodia and there's things I don't miss, namely the weather. I mean, what's Scotland famous for? It's just gray and drizzly and whatnot. But yeah, here in Cambodia, it's, it's, I mean, it's like a million degrees right now and it's probably freezing back in Scotland. Yeah, I, I miss certain things. Yeah, Wait, miss the, there's what? good people there. and I don't know. It's much more uh, open and tolerant society. Asia poses its challenges for sure. What, what are some of those uh, challenges? It's very racist here, and it, yeah, uh, yeah. everyone seems like everyone's trying to kill you all the time. But that's not the racism part. That's just it's people don't look out for each other here. Oh, you know, really? if, somebody, if somebody's driving along the road and they see a pothole, they'll swerve to avoid that, even if that means killing a pedestrian or running over, you know, someone on the other side of the road. They just wouldn't think about it, and so every day you kind of deal with that and it's you know I, I i don't want to speak badly about this country or this continent because i love both of them i've spent half my life in asia but that kind of grinds you down a little bit yeah it it's um it it almost feels like i mean i've never been but um that you have to have your defenses up when you're oh, outside God, yeah. a lot more than i i lived in china for eight years and anytime you go outside, almost 100% of people are pointing and staring and they're talking about you or shouting at you and you're just being continuously watched. And you have to keep in mind that everything you do is being sort of oh, there because it's communist. You're being judged and recorded like they're reporting back on you. But no matter where you go, you have to kind of make yourself a sounds weird in the western context but to make yourself a represent representative of your your ethnicity that's so terrible but you you're aware that if i do something bad even if i go out with a hangover in the morning people are going to see me and think wow 
that's what all foreigners or all white people or all Europeans do, you know. Oh. And you have that, to you have to be very careful and just compose yourself in the right way all the time. That might even lead to um, a, a better life because you have to kind of keep yourself in a in a straight and narrow type thing, or, or make it seem that way. Yeah, <laughs> but it can be exhausting. It can be exhausting for sure. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm very glad I left China because Southeast Asia is more tolerant and open. But you know, I, I went to get my hair cut two weeks ago, and I was sitting in the little tiny barber shop, and the barber is this lovely guy. But what he takes his time, it takes ages. Uh, but while I was sitting there, there's six people came along and said, Oh my god, a white person, I don't want to die. And they they left. And I turned to the barber and I said, I'm I'm sorry, I, I'm losing you business here. And he he was like, No, it's it's not your fault, you know. And he tried to explain to these people, this guy's been in the country since before the pandemic. He's double vaccinated, he's no more likely to have the virus than any of us. But, you know, they see someone that's a different ethnicity and it's, and before COVID, it was swine flu and SARS and AIDS and everything. So there's always just that foreigners bring disease mentality, but right. you try and you try and live with it and say, you know, it's not out of hate. It's just ignorance. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting when it's your home and you live here. And it's on the, it's on the daily thing where. I, yeah. uh, and like, like, where do you hang? Is it, is there a, uh, is there like a great cafe or um, bar around your area where you just, do you get, do you got a hang spot? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I've become a creature of routine for the first time in my life for having lived this life sort of on the road, just day to day being here. I, I now have this sort of set boring old man routine, but Friday nights I go to a place called the stumble Inn and I hang out there. Yeah, it's a, it's a good environment. Um, there's, this is a fairly international and diverse sort of uh, town. Um, this place, Campot, that I live. Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of different cafes and restaurants and whatnot, and people from all over the world, people from different backgrounds. So it is comparatively tolerant for Asia. What, uh, and do you speak, uh, what's the language spoken there? Do you, do you speak my Kamai. Yeah. yeah. So I, I can, I, this is the first country I've been in where I've not yet sort of learned the language. Um, I hired a teacher last year and it didn't really work out. And every week I say next week, I'm going to start. Um, I can speak Korean and Chinese, but I can't speak Kamai. And it's getting embarrassing and getting difficult when I see my neighbors every day. I know how to say, you know, the basic greetings and whatnot. And, I know my pleases and thank yous, but I don't know how to have a conversation with them. And I would love to, I'd love to be able to converse with them. Yeah. I, I, I kind of Muslim fish, fishing village and they have such fascinating lives that are just so different. And I would love to be able to talk with them on a deeper level. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I would be, I'd be like, Hey, can I go on one of your fishing boat rides? Do you, yeah, exactly. Do you mind? <laughs> exactly. And they would say, no way you can't come in my boat. And I would say, all right, well, at least tell me about it. And then no, then you'd be like, "Here's money," <laughs> and then you'd yeah, say, "Yeah, just come on, my friend." It's the total gringo way to go, right? <laughs> Let me buy you things. Um, <laughs> oh, that's it. So, how many languages do you know? Well, speaking well at the moment, 
uh, barely English. The more I live in Asia, the more I I find myself, what's that word? I don't remember that word. My English skills just deteriorate. Um, But I've forgotten lots of languages. Um, Yeah. I I learned French when I was in school, and then I learned Korean when I was there, and I learned Chinese, and I started learning Japanese. And, you know, I, I would struggle to speak any of these now, but, hey, when Squid Game was on TV, I could pretty much understand it still, so that was a nice surprise. I guess you retain it even if you can't access it enough to, to speak. You know, I'll see something written or I'll overhear something and I can, I can understand it even if I can't interact and hold a conversation anymore. Wow. So when you were in China, what, did you know Mandarin or Cantonese? So Cantonese is only really Hong Kong and okay. the, the southern part of China. So Mandarin is basically Chinese Chinese. That's what mm-hmm. they consider Chinese. It's the official language. However, I was in this little, little town, a little town with more people than Scotland, what they <laughs> consider a little town. And they spoke a dialect there. So really, I spoke that dialect. Um, and if I spoke that to like a Chinese person abroad, if, and I do when I meet them here, they don't have a clue what I'm talking about. So then I have to kind of refine my Chinese to a more standard Mandarin. Um, yeah, China's funny in that you go, you go 10 miles along the road and they'll speak a completely different dialect. If you learn to speak Mandarin, they can all understand you because it's taught in school and it's, it's on TV, but they're not going to speak Mandarin to you. You have to figure out how to understand the dialect, especially for old people. I could, I could always have a conversation with a college student. I could never understand anything the elderly folks said there. Oh. <laughs> so how, how, uh, what's your plan now? Are you, are you sticking around in Cambodia for a while? What, um, do, do you, or do you have an exit plan down the road? So I came here kind of thinking I'll be here for three months to write this book. It took six months to write it, six months of sort of editing and rewriting. And by the end of that, I'd kind of decided, yeah, I, I have no plans to ever leave. Um, I'm in a house that I rent, very cheap. It's in the middle of the countryside. I have a bunch of cats that I've adopted now. Um, I'll probably buy a, buy a house or some land and build a house next year. And one of the great things about Cambodia is that you can just arrive and say, here's $300. I want to live here. Give me like a, a semi-permanent sort of residency. And they'll just do that. So for as long as they keep a very amenable visa situation, I guess I'll be here. I don't really see, I don't don't look around and see anywhere better to live in the world, to be honest. I definitely miss traveling. Uh um, And I would love to be able to go back and live in Scotland for a few months, see friends and family, as long as I didn't have to stay through the winter. But I think in terms of long-term living cambodia is just the best place to be would there like if you went to visit your relatives in uh, scotland right now would there be a risk of you not being able to get back into cambodia well there was as of november 1st they've reduced a 14-day quarantine down to seven days and as of the 30th of november they're going to do away with the quarantine and theoretically the borders will be open then as long as you're vaccinated which i am Although I got one of the dodgy Chinese vaccines, 
which is just not recognized almost anywhere in the world. But I should be able to get back into Cambodia. Uh, and that was the initial worry. That's, that's something that's really kept, kept me here, even when I wanted to go visit friends in other countries. And, and as like with uh, the vaccine you got, do you have like a card or proof of? Oh, yeah. 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 So it's not such a big thing here where I live because we didn't really have much COVID here. Although everyone got vaccinated, we've got one of the highest rates in the world. But if you go to the, the capital, which I might do in the next couple of days just to go shopping because there's like no shops or supermarkets here where I live. But apparently you can't even get in a bus or go into a shop or restaurant without your card. So, I mean, and they, but in the capital, it's the first country in the world, I think, to have a hundred percent vaccination rate in its capital city. Huh. So everyone's got it. Yeah. They just started it in Los Angeles, the mandate. Uh, I went to a restaurant with my friends a few nights ago and mm-hmm. I carry my Vax card on me all the time, just in case. Yeah. And they were like, let's see your Vax card. And that's the first time I've had to produce it at a restaurant. Um, yeah. And I was just like, whoa. Okay. Surprising. Yeah. It would be weird for me going back to Scotland because mine is just this blue card. It's got not, it's just written in a biro, like, yes, this person's vaccinated. And I thought it just looks like the worst fake ID ever. (laughs) And you, there's got a, there's a QR code in it. And if you can read and write Kamai, then you can scan that and then you can fill in some data and then you come up with a, a picture of me wearing a mask so you can't even see my face. And I thought if I arrive in Scotland with this, there's no way they're going to believe that this is real. Oh my God. <laughs> what do you do in that situation? Like, it, would it, uh, would, is it like, is it something we should do to our bodies to go, okay, in order for me to get a Vax card, let me get the uh, one in the Western world too? Or is that going to screw us up? I'm, I'm going to do that anyway. Um, just, because there are serious questions raised over the one I got um, mm. as to whether it even works at all and, or whether there was anything in those little vials they were using. There's a lot of people oh, here. Man. This is one of the most corrupt places on earth that I've definitely heard people question that with some evidence. Uh, we're getting the booster shot pretty soon. It's AstraZeneca. Um, so hopefully there's a more legit card comes with that. Yeah, that, that'll help. And that's that is re- uh, accepted as proof in other parts of the world. But yeah, I got I got a note from the NHS sent to my parents house saying, uh, come and get vaccinated. This was a couple of months ago, and it, it listed a, a vaccination station somewhere in Fife, Scotland. And it said, we know this is probably not as close to home as you would have liked that. But yeah, it's about 11,000 kilometers away, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I, I should be able to get vaxxed again when I go to Scotland next, next summer. And that should make traveling a little easier. Yeah, that'll be cool. What do you, what do you pay for rent at your place? Please, please, uh, please make us all jealous here in the, the <laughs> California. So I have a, a lovely house with a big garden and I pay $300 a month and about oh. $20 in bills. Oh, I'm guessing it's probably a little cheaper than uh, where you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hold on a second. I need to put my pants back on. That was sexy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's yeah. It's such a trip. Hi, and and I'm you- probably paying more than I should as well. You could definitely get a place mm-hmm. for 150 here. 
and that probably depends because you're a foreigner type thing. Oh yeah, so, I'm getting yeah. screwed, but I'm I'm very happy with it. Yeah, it's a great deal for me. Oh, now um, when I was uh, I was in a village in the Czech Republic in like 1996, and the drinking drinking and eating in the uh, those pubs was just like yeah phenomenally cheap amazing it still is actually the czech republic's still very cheap is it i was there a couple of years ago and it was it was i can't remember but i mean a couple of euros for a beer it was really yeah super, big czech beer as well yeah oh i know and they don't and they don't even um i don't know if they still do the thing where when your beer is finished they just bring you the other beer you have to tell them to stop do they still do that i don't think i ever said stop i don't <laughs> And it was the absinthe trying the local absinthe that was oh i yeah. really loved that because you know growing up you hear about it and then you try the really cheap terrible one that they import to the uk because it's the only thing that's barely legal and then you go to europe and you have the real stuff it's actually very nice yeah. and it's a really weird uh you don't feel like drunk at all you feel like you're kind of tripping a little bit it's a different buzz yeah yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah. And I didn't know that Czech, the Czech Republic was a place for that, but they had a few absentheries there. They, well, um, the, it wasn't really uh, legal anywhere except the Czech Republic and Spain, I think, for many, many years. Yeah, they made it, well, according to what I heard at this one place in, in Prague, it was obviously legal in France for a long time. But then this one guy, I think, drank 10 bottles of red wine had a shot of absinthe and killed his family. So they made absinthe illegal because God forbid you make red wine illegal. <laughs> oh, I love the stupidity of humanity. <laughs> yeah. It can't have been the red wine's fault. No. no. <laughs> Let's make absinthe illegal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Reasonable a, reaction. The, the, um, back when I was still, yeah, I was like, I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I was married to one for like nine years after, you know, after I left and the Jehovah's Witnesses would come over our house and get drunk, you know, and uh, <laughs> they would like, they would end up like throwing up in the bathroom and staying all night. And I'd be like, what the, what the hell, man? And, um, and their excuse was like, oh, I think I ate something bad. I think I had a bad cookie. <laughs> like after 10 Jaeger shots. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. But they're, but they're just trying to avoid getting in trouble. But I just, I, it was always like, I think I have food poisoning. I, yeah. I had sushi and 12 well, martinis. <laughs> we've, we've all pulled that at some point in our life. When you wake up the next morning, you go into work. Say, oh, I've got a really bad migraine today. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, I keep forgetting about like uh, having to go to work. I think in general, you know, I haven't had a hangover in a long time. But man, when I, you know, when I did, I used to, I used to go, oh man, I have a hangover. I'm writing through it, you know. Yeah, well, we, you can get anything over the counter in Cambodia, so you can pick up any sort of painkillers you want here. And so, if you ever encounter a hangover, you just wake up. And, pop a codeine or something oh problem solved you can go about your day no problem oh really work. oh okay. very yeah it's a nice thing how hard do they go do they go oxycontin fentanyl that hard uh they i don't i don't do the strong ones i just take like the the really mild ones because you know it's a slippery slope but yeah no, exactly i like touch it like it, it in tramadol and stuff like that you just yeah. walk into any pharmacy and pick that up 
there was one night I, um, this was when I was in the Tenderloin in San Francisco and this girl gave me a pill you know, around four in the morning and I had been drinking like all night and, um, I had that pill and it made me, and I, I felt the best I've ever felt in my life. She's <laughs> like, Oh yeah, I have more. And she gave me like 10 of them. And the next morning I still felt good. And I threw, Ooh. I have no idea what those pills were, but I tossed them down the toilet immediately. Cause I was just yeah, like, yeah, they sound dangerous. They, yeah. It, it's like when this is like too good, this is a problem. So. Yep. Stop before you begin there. Yeah, yeah, that's that's I that was the greatest feeling ever. Even when the my come body... down is there for a reason. It's warning. Don't yeah. Do this. Oh, if there's no come yeah. down. Yeah, stay clear. Exactly. <laughs> um, plus I'm paranoid as hell. So you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mix well with uppers, I guess. Well, uh, yeah, I have no idea. I'm just. Yeah, like the cocaine, like like Hunter Thompson and the cocaine. It's it blows my mind yeah. that um, I don't know if you've 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 seen this, but like there's people that get even when they stop using cocaine, some people can get back to normal, and some people it's almost like they still have yeah. the cocaine personality. Acid um, as well. Really, I mean, you, you meet certain people or work with certain people who are just. Uh, you you can tell you've fried your brain and it's not coming back there's something yeah. that's gone wrong you've rewired your brain uh and i don't think i don't think that comes at all from trying acid once or twice i think that'd be a very beneficial thing but um you you meet people that did it habitually even a half century ago and they're just living on another planet now and they might touch down on this planet to hold a conversation for five minutes but then they just take off into this weird little universe and they're prone to just bouts of explosive paranoia as well they're, they can be quite frightening to be around and given that i've spent my life studying beat literature and countercultural literature i meet these folk a lot yeah and you can, you can recognize them quickly and you always hope for the best but they'll hit you with that paranoid outburst eventually Oof. when I, as you've um as you've gone on through your studies and working um on uh you know the hunter s thompson and the and mm -hmm. the beats and stuff have, have you met anyone where you were kind of starstruck and you're like oh my god huh. i i i got to meet you because of the work i do um so i, I mean other than me other than me well, apart from you, Tony, yeah, goes without saying. Uh, I don't, I don't generally get starstruck. Um, I've, I've been very fortunate to meet, even just through email or whatever, many people that I respect. Um, they I remember meeting Michael McClure, the poet in San Francisco, yeah. not, not really knowing what to say to him. I was very young, and he was just. I don't know. He didn't even seem like a real person. He was just kind of this perfect old guy with this completely white hair and blue eyes. And he spoke in the voice you would hope all poets would speak in. And I was just kind of mesmerized and just sat and listened to him. Um, I got to go to Hunter Thompson's house, but sadly that was a few years after he passed. Um, and I met like a lot of the people that were kind of in his books and stuff. And I was, I was pretty, I didn't know what to say. I wouldn't have said starstruck, but I think it was the altitude sickness to be fair. Cause that was all the way up, up in Aspen or near Aspen. You know? Yeah. 
and it's and I just I think it being able to be like in the room where where a writer did you know some great work is just uh, um it's just I feel I like like the energy is just kind of cool you know oh I did get starstruck once in my life I I saw Werner Herzog uh we were having breakfast in uh on this volcano in North Korea and he was filming this movie there and I was running a marathon and I saw him just sitting pushing this boiled potato around a plate because that was all you're given for breakfast there and I I thought you know he's one of my favorite directors I want so badly to go and talk to him but I was terrified because it's it's Werner Herzog I mean he's not doesn't seem like the easiest guy to go up and speak to and then of course you don't want to interrupt the guy's breakfast you know with some stupid fanboy nonsense but then so I just I sat and I tried not to stare and then later that day, someone came over to me and they said, you'll never believe who I just met. And I said, it wasn't Ferder Herzog, was it? He said, yeah, he was so nice. And he, we took this selfie together. Oh, <laughs> just, uh, you missed yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. And that was the only time I was properly, I, I, I wouldn't have even known what to say. Yeah. <laughs> too shy, too starstruck. Yeah, that would be a good one though. Yeah. That's fun. What um what what are you working on now? Um so I finished the Hunter Thompson book, finished writing it last year, then there's loads and loads of editing and fixing things and there's constantly, you know, when you write a book like this, you finish it and you start to mention it to other people and you feel safe like the book is in the bag. And then other people kept coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh, here's something. And I think, oh, now I've got to put that in the book. I've got to go back and change it. So there's about a year worth of post-writing writing to do. And for the past couple of months, I've been just sort of on a break from that. Yet at the same time, I've been trying to write about Hunter Thompson, just kind of to promote the book. Mm -hmm. I've been spinning off parts of the book as separate essays and articles because the research is fresh in my head and I've got a memory like a sieve. So it's going to be gone soon. So I may as well get this stuff out and sell it just in case the book doesn't sell. I'll sell these articles and make some money now and make it worth it. So that's what I've been doing. But I do, I do have a plan for the next book. I kind of loosely know what that's going to be. And my first book was about Burroughs. The second was about Ginsburg. This one's about Hunter Thompson. So I'm kind of jumping forward in time and moving away from the beat generation a bit. But the next one is going to be about Haruki Murakami. Oh, wow. Complete, just massive change to something totally different. But I've tried to read him and everyone tells me he's brilliant. And I just, I can't get into it. And I don't know why. And I know the problem's me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't know what to do with that. I I they're like I, which try this one. Read? I'm like I, I tried Norwegian wood. Yeah. Like a hundred pages. Um, what was the one? IQ84 or something like that. Um okay. I tried that for like a hundred pages and I'm like, I just don't care. <laughs> I don't so, know why I don't care. So Norwegian Wood is the most non-Murakami of Murakami books. It's okay. something he did that's just totally different. It's almost like if you're to look at sort of TV shows, they say non-canonical, right? You know, it's like 
completely outwith the Murakami universe. You know, in all his books, they're all different, but this is the most different. One, uh, yeah, 1984, but with the number changed, is a fascinating book. I love that. And I don't actually like very, very long books that you have to invest months in reading, but I, I found it rewarding, perhaps because I got into his other books first. Mm-hmm. His books are not all even in quality. There, there are a few kind of poor ones, but I think on his best, he is a phenomenal writer. So you might want to try a few more. Uh, and if you're just open to the pure weirdness of it, yeah. I like uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicles. I think that's just a fantastically insane book. Wind Up Bird Chronicles. It's going to be on yeah. my library holds after this. Okay. 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 <clears throat> I will give that a try. And not just because it was the last one I read. <laughs> yeah, it's but it, it's it, it sounds like I mean I I feel I feel like you kind of have a good vibe of you know we're we're but we both come from the same ilk of finding these authors that mean everything yeah, to us. Yeah. And if you're if you're working if you're doing a project on him and investing that much time, I'm going to take your word on okay. what book I should. Just go so ahead. If you're, give it, if you're give also it. interested in the beats at all, look out for the hidden references to the beat generation. As far as I can tell, the beats are mentioned in every book he's written, or at least the vast majority of them. Sometimes just a really subtle reference, or sometimes he'll go off for a page on how this character's hero was Jack Kerouac. Um, yeah, I was d- doing this beat conference last week over Zoom, and someone mentioned Murakami, and I I mentioned that. And when it finished, I went off and just opened a random book at a random page. It was just a, a one-page dissection of Kerouac's uh, Lonesome Traveler. Mm-hmm. That was a weird coincidence. Or as Burroughs said, there are no coincidences. The, um, and, and would you be able to interview Maricom? I think that would be a very difficult thing to do, but I'm hoping that that would be possible. Um, given that I don't think there's, there are many studies of his work. I mean, I, I still have to begin the proper research for this. I'll find that he's quite uh, reclusive. It's in that great tradition of reclusive authors that are difficult to, he does not do interviews, basically. Oh, really? Okay. But I think he might, there might be a chance of him doing a private interview, not for publication, just for you know, the purpose of helping someone's research. And so what, a, what, a bougie thi- what a bougie thing to do to not do interviews. To just be that, <laughs> that, that well-liked as an artist and an author. You know, he should, like he Dylan. should, come, yeah, he like should Dylan. come down to the earth like us where we have to hustle our books and do mm-hmm. many, many interviews and write free essays for uh, publication for promotion. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, I think he just became a superstar overnight in Japan to the point he couldn't leave his house. Um, like back wow. with the publication of not his first two, they were kind of underground, not successful books, but his first big book. And so I, I do get where he's coming from huh. and his books are just purposefully cryptic. So he doesn't want to be answering the same questions over and over. What does this mean? What does this mean? You know, he, his whole thing is figure it out, figure it out for yourselves. Yeah. And the inevitable, why do you keep describing women's ears? <laughs> oh, is that his thing? He's the women's yeah, ears? Yeah, it's like Tarantino and the feet, you know. He's, 
every single book he's got is there's some woman with a beautiful ear. The thing with Tarantino's feet, though, because this was like really brought up when Once Upon a Time and uh, Hollywood came out, um, is as a story device, like just the bottom of the foot or or just a foot in general is like really intimate. It's almost yeah. more intimate than nudity. Yeah, sure. And um, and I and I and I think it's probably just a story device that he glommed onto, and then they, everyone thinks he has a foot fetish, but it's just like. You know, it's um, just I remember the way the I haven't seen the movie since it came out. And I need to watch it again because I love it so much. Great but, film. Yeah. But when she put her feet on the dashboard with Brad yeah. Pitt and you see the bottom of her feet through the windshield and there's something more intimate to that than if they were both butt naked in the car. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I went back and watched all of his movies um recently rewatched them all and there's just so many layers of brilliance to those and i i i'd never thought of the the foot thing as part of the story i i i knew he's got his own just little quirks like in every film there's a subtle reference to tennessee um sometimes it's just the the name of a beer is like tennessee beer or something like that because that's where he's from so he just slips that in in the the most random of places and I just assumed he had a foot fetish, right? So he was just putting that in as his own thing. And it's the fact that it's, it's never a man's foot, is it? Right. Yeah, it's always these beautiful actresses that I think Tarantino kind of loves. And then, yeah, I want to work with her feet for a while. But at the same, yeah, at the same time, I don't really think I've ever seen John Travolta or Brad Pitt's feet. And, and it might kill the whole rest of the body if i saw their feet because some dude's feet are kind of jangly you know what i'm saying oh yeah for sure hairy <laughs> gnarly feet right <laughs> it's in the contract don't show my feet <laughs> it's just like uh, it, there's there, there was meetings happening at um caa and all the big all the big agencies and and it was and it was foot uh lawyer, legal documents regarding the litigious but does tarantino come along and you just say well i wouldn't do it for other directors but if tarantino wants my feet front and center and his his film i'm gonna say yes yeah if tarantino wants my ass on his penis i'm gonna say yes <laughs> actually actually i was at a screening of a film um uh, uh, Janet Fitch, a wonderful writer, wrote this book called Paint It Black, and it was adapted to the to the screen. And I was so excited to you know go to the screening and watch the film, and it was lovely. And I was with my friends. Got up after, turned around. Quentin Tarantino was sitting behind me the whole time. <laughs> like I'm like I've, I've been in Quentin Tarantino's eyeline for like two hours and ten minutes. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I've heard he. I've heard him say he likes to lurk in cinemas. He'll just quietly sit up the back where no one can see and bother him. He find a nice place that he's just hidden. He'll just, he's watching the cinema and he's also, he's, he's watching the film, but he's also watching the cinema. He's watching people's reactions to stuff. He oh, studies how people do that. Yeah. yeah. It was, it, I'm sure, well, there was, 
he had friends there because I think like David Cross's wife, um, Amber Timberland, I'm going to get her name wrong. She's the one who directed yeah. it. So it's like all these people were there that I was huge fans of. And I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, and then <laughs> and then I sat up and I'm like, and there's Quentin Tarantino sitting behind me, of course. <laughs> oh, I get starstruck. I, I try to hold it in. Uh, sometimes I don't. And sometimes well, um, if it's Tarantino, yeah, that's that's definitely I think that would have that effect on me as well. Yeah, I didn't say hi. I just turned around. I was like, and there you are. All right. <laughs> and then it, I think I was just kind of tired. Um, but uh, well, yeah, you're, you're in that proximity to cinematic greatness. And Alan yeah. Ginsberg used to talk about the idea of just being just being close by like a, a great, you're almost absorbing by osmosis part of their, the, the lessons they could theoretically give you, you know, just sitting at the guru's feet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, and then when they were filming once upon a time in Hollywood, that's when I was commuting back and forth to UCLA and East Hollywood. And th- so they were doing night shoots and it was just killing my commute I, on the way home. It would take me forever um to get through hollywood i'm like you guys are killing me i just want to go to bed <laughs> at the same time it's like it's like oh it's quentin tarantino it's what a what a glorious privilege to have be stuck in traffic because of the film you know? sure yeah you know a little bit of inconvenience for a while and then we get this masterpiece that results from it yeah yeah. Oh, I got to watch that again. I, I'm setting aside time this week to watch that again. Because yeah. I, I, I haven't seen it since the day it opened up at the, um, in, in, uh, at the day it opened. And I saw it at the New Beverly, uh, his theater. I was like, mm-hmm. it was first screening. We sat in the front row where we were just nerded out about it. And uh, yeah. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Well, a lot of people have asked me why did I write that book or any book. All the stories I wrote were true because I believed in what I saw. I was traveling west one time at the junction of the state line of Colorado. It's arid western one and the state line of poor Utah. I saw in the clouds huge and massed above the fiery golden desert of even falls. A great image of God with forefinger pointed straight at me through halos and rolls and gold folds that were like the existence of the gleaming spear in his right hand which saith, Come on, boy, go thou across the ground. Go moan for man. Go moan. Go groan. Go groan alone. Go roll your bones alone. Go thou and be little beneath my sight. Go thou and be minute as seed in the pod. Go thou, go thou, die hence, and of this world report you well and truly. Anyway, I wrote the book because we're all gonna die. In the loneliness of my life, my father dead, my brother dead, my mother far away, my sister and my wife far away. Nothing here but my own tragic hands that once were guarded by a world, a sweet attention, that now are left to guide and disappear their own way into the common dark of all our death. Sleeping in me raw bed alone and stupid With just this one pride and consolation My heart broke in a general despair And opened up inwards to the Lord We've just been back and forth across the country several times And cars and our adventures are over We're still
still great friends, but we have to go into later phases of our lives. So there he goes, Dean Moriarty, ragged in the moth-eaten overcoat he brought specially for the freezing temperatures of the East. Walking off alone, and last I saw him, he rounded the corner of 7th Avenue, eyes on the street ahead, and bent to it again. Gone. So, in America, when the sun goes down, and I sit on the old broken-down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the west coast and all that road going and all the people dreaming in the immensity of it. And now I know by now that children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out. And don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all the rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in. Nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. Think of Dean Moriarty, I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. Think of Dean Moriarty, Think of Dean Moriarty. David S. Wills on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, High White Notes, The Rise and Fall of Gonzo Journalism. Next week on the show, we have Joshua J. He's the author of How Magicians Think, Misdirection, Deception, and Why Magic Matters. Keep reading books and let them fill your souls. Until next week, wonderful listeners, I'll have a great weekend. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.